Welcome to Talking Beat, the podcast for the Portland Police Bureau. We're focusing on thoughtful conversations that we hope will inform and provide you with a small glimpse of work performed by Portland police officers, as well as issues affecting public safety in our city. Here's what's on today's show. When we think about domestic violence relationships, uh, they're intimate relationships. It's not just about the abuse, but it's somebody that you share your life with. So it's really hard for people to, to break away from that because it's not always bad. And some people still hold on to that hope that the person can change or that things will get easier because love exists. Love is real. You know, the abuse is not okay. Love shouldn't hurt. But at the same time, being able to separate that for some people can be very difficult. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. In our own community, Portland police officers respond to domestic violence calls every day. Those calls are then turned over to a specialized unit. Today, we'll talk to Officer Lisa Fort of the Domestic Violence Reduction Unit, as well as Emmy Martinez, who works for Multnomah County as a victim advocate. In talking about domestic violence, generally we talk about the abuser in terms of he and the victim is she. While using these terms makes it easier for the conversation to flow, it does not detract from the fact that domestic violence happens among all groups of people. Lisa, let's start with you. Before we can talk about domestic violence, we need to probably define what it is and what does the law say. Domestic abuse, violence, whatever word you want to use, could fall under any number of uh, various crimes. You know, obviously assault, but it could also be strangulation, um, criminal mischief, which is where somebody... Uh, destroys or breaks property of another. In the eyes of the law, some are going to be easier to prove than others. It could be nothing physical, just all verbal, where, you know, the mom or wife is constantly being berated by husband, and the kids are witnessing that, talking down to him, calling him stupid, fat, et cetera, et cetera, you know, over the course of a 20-year marriage, that's going to impact somebody mentally. And it's teaching the kids you know, they see that happening, whether it's a male or female child. They're picking up on how dad treats mom, and they're internalizing that, and that's becoming their norm. Kind of the cycle potentially could continue. You know, verbal abuse is going to be more difficult to prove. You know, I mean, we'd have to have some kind of audio recordings to really prove that. It is one of the most dangerous police calls that we take for responding officers to go to a domestic violence call. There's so many unknowns. We don't know if there's any weapons involved. Emotions are at the pinnacle. I mean, that's the reason that this victim has finally called the police, even though this abuse has probably been going on, you know, several times before for who knows how many years or months or weeks or whatever. Pretty much guaranteed this isn't the first time that something has happened between these two. It's just reached that level where she's scared enough that she finally is intervening and calling the police. And a lot of times that gets interrupted by the perpetrator grabbing the phone, breaking the phone. Now there's no means of communication for her to reach out to, which sometimes leads to running out of the apartment and banging on the next door neighbor's apartment or trying to, you know, reach anybody who can contact the police. I should say to our listeners that we'll probably refer to DVRU during this podcast. We love acronyms at the Portland Police Bureau, and that actually stands for Domestic Violence Reduction Unit. Lisa, tell us a little bit more about the team. DVRU is a uh, collection of officers and county, Multnomah County 
detectives. We work on domestic violence cases and try to hold the offender accountable um, based on the victim's wishes. How do you get the cases? I mean, how do they come to you? So any any call that comes into dispatch that's coded as a domestic violence, officers are required to write a report, even if it turns out to be a movie that was playing that was... Um, you know, yelling and screaming and the neighbor heard it and thought it was a fight, they're required to do at least a um, quick supplemental report to indicate what it was. So no domestic violence call that comes into dispatch is cleared with out writing a report. All the cases come into our office and are screened by the sergeants, and then they're assigned out to the officers. And once they're assigned to the officers, we contact the victim and uh, de- first off determine if they're in a safe place and uh, speak with them about what their wishes are. Do they want to pursue charges? Do they not want to pursue charges, but they want a restraining order, um, a- apply for a restraining order, or do they not want to do either of those, but they would like to have some advocacy and speak with one of our advocates who can provide various resources for them to either help them get out of that situation or um, develop a safety plan if they're planning on staying in this in the relationship. So that brings uh, talking about advocates. That brings you in, Emmy. Tell me a little bit about like a typical day for you. What would you do? My job specifically, I reach out to people that have made a police report that's domestic violence focused. Um, and so I will reach out to them and kind of figure out how they want to proceed. And we worked very closely with the officers in our unit. We all sit kind of in the same office space. And so um, we're there to help each other on with the cases that we get assigned. For my caseload specifically, it is more of a general population that like will report domestic violence to a patrol officer. So then I will make follow-up contact that way. I think there's a lot of stereotypes, Lisa, about domestic violence. And I think we all have in our head the typical male abuser, the husband or the boyfriend. And I know that could be a large part of your cases. But tell me a little bit about the people DVRU comes across as abusers. Uh, It it is typical uh, male abuser, but we do see cases quite frequently where it's uh, a woman abuser against her husband or her boyfriend. Um, We have cases from the LGBTQ community, all, all kinds of different socioeconomic status, high, super high income earners to low income earners to the unemployed, to those that are, you know, sleeping on the street. So it, it really runs the gamut from all races, sexes, financial status. While we're talking about abusers and characteristics of abusers, let's talk about, I guess, some warning signs. If you're just getting into a relationship, what would be some warning signs that this person may have a tendency to be an abuser? Um, Well, we know that domestic violence is about power and control. So um, a person can gain power and control various ways. When somebody is in a relationship, warning signs that could help would be taking notice of that person's attitude and behavior towards you, like if they're really jealous, if they're trying to isolate you from specific systems, um, unrealistic expectations, blaming others for their mistakes. There's really a long list of what we would call red flags, um, and they're power and control driven. It's any way that somebody can gain power and control over an individual. So I think that a lot of people just wonder why the victim doesn't leave, you know, and it seems really straightforward, you know, if somebody's hurting you or if somebody's not treating you right, why don't you just leave? 
That is a very common question. Um, and I feel like it is uh, a little victim blaming driven because it puts the responsibility on the person that's being hurt and not the perpetrator. There are a lot of different barriers that somebody faces when they decide to leave a relationship. And often, even when a person makes a police report, the entire story isn't being told even at that time. To get to the point where somebody calls the police, they're in an extreme crisis-driven situation where they feel like that is what's best for them in that situation. Um, so there really is a lot of different barriers. And when somebody calls the police, that is kind of a perfect place for us to intervene. And that may look very different for many different people. We know from statistics that when people do call police during a domestic violence situation, that's not the first time that they have been abused or beaten. It's just like Emmy said, it's reached that point where they need, they feel they need intervention to be safe. Uh, we also know that statistically speaking, um, it takes seven or eight attempted leaves or leaves and to go back and then attempts again before they actually make that final hurdle and leave the perpetrator for good. So actually, I didn't mean to be flip when I asked that, but I think that there are barriers as as we've talked about. So give me an example of some of the barriers that might prevent somebody from leaving. Language, immigration status is one of the, the big ones that I have experienced, like, cause I, I work with a bilingual population, um, with the Latino community. And so sometimes, um, language, um, and immigration is one of the reasons that could hold somebody in a situation where it's unsafe because they fear for their life and the life of their children. Um, I worked with this woman recently where she told me that, um, she had all her important documentation set aside even months prior to her leaving because she was preparing. So she was safety planning in a way that was safe for her and her, her children to be able to leave whenever that time was right. So when she saw a little window of opportunity to leave, she was able to quickly grab the things that she had set aside and leave with her children in that instant. So it wasn't like something that she, she knew ex an exact time and day of when she would leave, but she was already kind of preparing it to make it a little easier for her to leave when that perfect window of opportunity came up. Another example would be um, financial. Uh, they, you know, maybe the uh, victim has not worked in quite a while and they're not sure what their job skill level is. So they stay in the relationship because they know that they at least have a roof over their head. They have food on their table. Another example would be because of the kids. Either their kids are the perpetrator's kids or they're from another relationship, but they don't want to uproot the kids and not knowing where they were, they're going to sleep or live. So they stay because it's a, it's a known factor and they feel that they can at least somewhat control what he, what the perpetrator is going to do versus the unknown of leaving and not knowing where you're going to live, where you're going to eat. When we think about domestic violence relationships, uh, they're intimate relationships. It's not just about the abuse, but it's somebody that you share your life with. So it's really hard for people to to break away from that because it's not always bad. And some people still hold on to that hope that the person can change or that things will get easier um, because their love exists. Love is real. You know, the abuse is not okay. 
love shouldn't hurt. But at the same time, um, being able to separate that for some people can be very difficult. I um, have people tell me all the time, even after they left, that they feel guilty for still loving the person. And I let them know that that's a very normal feeling because you can't um, completely detach yourself from a person who you spent many a long time with. But um, that, that hope that that person will change or not wanting that person to get in trouble. When the police is involved, there's a lot of other systems that come into place, like the person gets arrested, they get charges. That scares people to think that it can get to that point. So sometimes even when they make reports, they may not follow through because that's it's a scary system. It's a scary outcome for many people. So that leads to my next question. An officer writes a report regarding a domestic violence call and it's sent to DVRU for follow-up. What happens next? My first thing I do is contact the victim and um, preferably in person if um, if we can locate them. Sometimes that is a hurdle right there, just trying to find a good phone number or a good address for the victim to see what their wishes are. Do they want to press charges against this person or do they not want to press charges, but they do want to get a restraining order, which they can petition for the court and the judge will, will review that and grant that restraining order. Uh, sometimes they don't want to press charges. They don't want a restraining order, um, but they do want advocacy from uh, ME or another advocate in our office who can provide resources for them and help navigate through that, uh, developing a safety plan. Um, but sometimes they don't want any of that. They just want to uh, be out of the relationship and um, start over and forget about, you know, put it behind them. Um, other times they want to stay with the relationship and deny that anything happened or that uh, what the officer wrote in the report is not is not true um, so there's there's kind of all kinds of levels of um, where where it goes once it hits my desk but my first step is to contact the uh, victim in the case and see you know where she's at is she safe is it initially is it even a good time to talk right now because sometimes um the perpetrator is in the house and um as we touched on earlier they monitor phone calls they want to know who you're talk who the victim is talking to just checking in for very first to see if it's a good time to talk and sometimes it's not and you know I'll make contact at a different different date and time Emmy what kind of resources are available we have many resources, um, connections to community-based agencies. So community agencies that are focused on helping um, domestic violence and sexual assault survivors, um, anything from counseling to possible housing resources, depending on funding, if they need food, if they need some clothing. Um, sometimes when people call the police and they do decide to leave, like at that instant, um, they often leave without food without any clothes. And so um, as advocates, we step in and we help to make sure that they have the things that they need in that moment to keep them safe. Um, that could be vouchering them into a hotel for a few nights. People will often leave with very little. A lot of times victims won't leave because of their pets. They don't want to leave their pets in the house with the perpetrator for fear that they will you know, hurt or kill the dog or the cat. Um, so that's another resource that they provide is pet food so that they can bring their pet and keep the pet safe as well. And transportation of getting to um, the Gateway Center, the one-stop domestic violence center, um, if getting there is a hardship for them, we will help with transportation. Um, they can get a restraining order there as opposed to having to come all the way into downtown to get that. 
that that's good to know because I think that a lot of people think about a restraining order of going to court, standing in front of a judge, maybe their abuser in the room, and it being a very intimidating process. Yeah, and and we help through through that that whole process, even the process of if they do choose to follow through with pressing criminal charges and prosecution. As advocates, we will help support them through that process as well. You mentioned a safety plan. Tell me a little bit about what that entails. Um, safety plan can look different for many people. When you think about a safety plan of leaving an abusive situation, just making sure that you have all the things that, that are necessary, like birth certificates, uh, passports, things like that in a safe spot. So that could include ha- having a place to go to, a friend's house or a family member's house, uh, preferably um, location that the perpetrator does not know the address or the phone number, so they can't continue to follow them to that lo- new location. So if I'm listening to this and I'm in a, an abusive relationship, what would you tell me to do? Getting information, I think, would be a first step. We really do try to meet people where they're at. We don't push somebody one way or the other, um, especially as advocates, because we're non-sworn and we do work closely with officers. But if they um, are hesitant to go all the way through with prosecution, we want to make sure that we respect that. So we want to make sure that they have the power because a domestic violence relationship is all about power and control. And the last thing that we want to do is to continue that pattern for them. So we really want to make sure that they have all the information. So if somebody is listening to this, um, I would say that you can reach out in a very confidential and safe way to even a community partner agency. Um, there's called a safety, there's Proyecto Unica. There's a lot of different agencies that somebody can get that information and kind of start that safety planning um, process at an early stage, and then um, just kind of go at your own pace, whatever feels safe for you and your family. So if you're in a domestic violence situation right now, there's two organizations that are 24-7. One is called Call to Safety, and their number is 888-235-5333. And Proyecto Unica, they're a bilingual 24-7 crisis line, and their number is 503-232-4448. So you probably want to be careful, though. We want to warn those listeners to be careful on their phone or their computer about, I guess, Googling things and leaving the history up, correct? Yes. Many of these domestic violence and sexual assault websites have that one quick click button so people can safely leave the the website. So if you have a friend or a loved one who's in a domestic violence situation, what kind of things can you do to help them or say to them? I would say listen. Listen to what they have to say. Give them a voice. Again, um, as we've mentioned, it's about power and control. So um, not judging them, just listening, giving giving them an ounce of of, uh, control back in their life. You know, you can ask if they want your help and how you can help them. And also just to remember that um, support and listening does go a very long way because we are not here to rescue anybody. We um, can't necessarily save them. It's a choice that they have to make for themselves. So really being um, that supportive person that is going to listen to them with a non-judgmental ear and just... um, but still caring, you know, for them and giving them maybe the information that they that they need to make an informed decision. Lisa, you could work anywhere in the bureau. Why do you work for DVRU? Uh, I I like to have the opportunity to to give women their life back. I guess I would say, um, you know, a portion of their life. 
has been taken from them and they don't necessarily always see it until they have left and and kind of start having their self-esteem, self-confidence put back into them. So it's nice to see that change in somebody's personality to where they are, they become happy again about life in general, not, you know, scared all the time, wondering who's, you know, where is he? Is he watching me? Is he hearing what I'm saying? Is he monitoring my text messages? What does success, for lack of a better term, look like in the cases that you work on? I mean, there's just so many factors. You know, I mean, success for one person could be he's prosecuted and now he's in jail, but success for another person could be no charges were filed, no RO was obtained, but she got out of the relationship and she's moved, you know, to a new town and has familial support. So it's it's hard to judge success on our end. I think it's more success in, on their, how they view it as success. We'll put in the show's notes the resources we mentioned today. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Talking Feed. Do you have a question for us? You can call and leave us a message on our dedicated voicemail line at 971-339-8868. Or send us an email to talkingbeat at portlandoregon.gov. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. More episodes can be found at our website, portlandoregon.gov slash police slash podcast. Oh, 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 o